Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much and welcome to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. Carol is on caregiving duty. We'll explain that in just a couple of moments, but joins us for the opening segment of this program by phone, and we're delighted to have her with us. She is a nationally known gerontologist, chairman uh, of the National Council on Aging, a very prestigious national organization dealing with a number of the kinds of issues we deal with here on Caregiver SOS On Air. She also serves as executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And uh, Carol, good to have you back. Thank you very much. And as I indicated, uh, you're on the phone dealing, as you mentioned last week, on Caregiver SOS On Air, uh, dealing with a family matter and and trying to uh, get your uh, uh, ankles and feet buried in caregiving. How's it going? Well, you know, I would have to say that things are improving, um, and we're going to hope for a good outcome at the end of this hospital stay. Well, we certainly hope so, and uh, we we thank you for taking the time out of that to talk with us uh, Uh, today on Caregiver SOS on air. In just a couple of moments, and it's interesting because in a way it dovetails uh, with some of the things that uh, you talk about and we talk about often on this show. Donald Gordon, who is head of EMS in Leon Valley, used to head EMS in the city of San Antonio. He's medical director now in Leon Valley. will be talking with us about emergency services and what especially caregivers ought to know about when you need to call, why you need to call EMS, what you need to do to prepare uh, for their arrival, and a variety of issues. And, and Dr. Gordon will be with us in, in just a couple of moments. But you've got some interesting uh, background and information on something that, uh, especially caregivers and spouses who have an elderly person uh, with them in the house, really need to know. How in the world do you get Grandpa to go to sleep? Well, yeah, that is such a great question, and I was thrilled to to see this article in Next Avenue on sleep problems because so many of the elderly have sleep problems, don't sleep well, um, and then if you have somebody with Alzheimer's, uh, it can be doubly difficult to get someone to sleep. So this is advice from um, Leslie Kernison. I hope I'm saying that right, Leslie, who's an MD geriatrician that works with families on sleep problems. Um, and she was just talking in this article about, you know, the different things that can impact sleep uh, that you might, you know, you need to take seriously if, if someone's having sleep problems. So heart and lung conditions, stomach-related conditions like something, you know, in your, you've got that acid reflux, chronic pain from arthritis uh, can cause sleep problems, anxiety and depression and mood problems might impact uh, sleep and then probably a really big one is medication side effects or substances like alcohol are going to all affect sleep. So, you know, one of the most important things, uh, she says, is to really put together a journal of sleep patterns, which, Ron, don't you think that makes sense? Of course it makes sense. Right. So, you know, you're going to do a little Sherlock Holmes sleuthing about what time do you normally go to bed, what time do you wake up, and how long does it take you to fall asleep, how many times do you wake up in the night, and if you wake up, how long does it take to fall back to sleep. Um, is somebody saying that you're snoring, that you're not breathing deeply because they want to know about sleep apnea? 
Um, and then are you tired during the day? Do you nap during the day? Um, do you doze off in the middle of things during the day? So those are all kinds of questions that you need to really start answering uh, before you start looking at problems uh, or addressing the sleep problems. If you have someone with dementia, you have to add to that list. So anytime somebody has dementia, they're daily, you know, that circadian daytime routine can get disrupted. And so you really have to reinforce it that daylight, that sunlight during the daytime hours. So outdoor light or bright light therapy during the day can really help someone with Alzheimer's improve their sleep. I know my dad. all of us improve our sleep. My dad was a wanderer when, uh, <laughs> as he reached the end of life and had dementia, my mom would say he'd get up all hours of the night and just wander around the house. So of course, she never slept. Right, because you're always worried what's going to happen to them. Exactly, exactly. Right, so so that light therapy can help say, okay, this is daytime, and at night, maybe to sleep better at night. Um, increased physical activity, again, that can help all the sleep. And the research shows that um, if walking during the day helps improve sleep for people with Alzheimer's at night. Uh, another one that we talk about for all populations, especially good for Alzheimer's, is those cues, those environmental cues. It's time to go to sleep. That means quiet. You start dimming the lights closer to bedtime um, and, and, you know, limiting not a lot of big activities. Start quieting down. I'm thinking of my uh, my son, and it's, you know, like you do with kids. Okay, right. it's time to stop jumping on the bed. We're getting ready for bed <laughs> yeah, now. <laughs> right. so the lights are dimming. TV's <laughs> off. And then, and then um, the other one is establishing a real routine, a consistent routine for wake-up time. And, and they say that's good for everyone. I think you and I talked a couple of weeks ago about some studies that showed that people that sleep late on the weekend sometimes have more health problems than people that go to sleep and get up at the same time every day. Yeah, the key is keep the same schedule if you can. It's keeping the same schedule that you'll feel better um, and that too much sleep is also as big a problem as too little sleep. Now, for those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS. On Air, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, who is in Amarillo by phone now and uh, will be returning to her caregiver duties in just a few minutes. Coming up shortly on this program, Dr. Donald Gordon, Medical Director of Leon Valley EMS, will be joining us. Uh, he has forgotten more about EMS than any of us will ever know, so we will be talking with him about emergency medicine. Uh, and, and Carol, there's an interesting study that uh, you and I had talked briefly about, and, and this is good news uh, for those who have a lot of education and, and are in reasonably good health. There's a relationship between education and dementia. Well, there is, um, and there's actually been a big study that was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine talking about the risks of developing dementia, uh, and what they found is that people with at least a high school education, um, it ha- it, that that high school education leads to improvements in their lifestyle and improvements in their physical health that can help prevent or delay cognitive decline. So we've known for a long time that people with lower educational status have poorer health. And so what they're saying now, you know, because we're talking about heart health and brain health are closely associated, that same educational attainment, knowing more about your own body, about your own lifestyle, and what your, how your behaviors affect your health, um, can, if you improve your health, you're going to improve your cognitive health. And so stay in school. 
And so stay in school. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, there's some other studies that talk about, I know um, Dr. Paul Benheim we had on the show uh, a little while back, and he has a Brain Savers program, right. and they talk about um, brain reserve. And so the more education you have, the more things you know, you know, you can forget. You were just saying, um, you know, the guest has probably forgotten more. You can forget more and still have all of that extra brain reserve uh, before the dementia will actually show up. And so it gives you a little cushion uh, when you get cognitive impairment. The more you know, the more cushion you have, apparently. That's a good thing. That is a good thing. But, but the, the next thing I want to talk about in honor of your guest um, you and I did find an article in the New York Times about emergency services. Yes, yes. That was very interesting. <laughs> yeah, if you're looking to live in a high-rise, be careful what floor you pick. Yes, because the title of the article was High-Rise Living Linked to Lower Survival After Cardiac Arrest. And, Ron, you got it immediately. Why do you think that is? Because it takes EMS a longer time to get to your apartment. They can't get up there. That's right. So the higher the floor you live on, the lower your chance of surviving a cardiac arrest. Oi. And so so this was was fascinating because they studied this high-rise building in Toronto that had 25 floors. And they studied the EMS calls for cardiac arrest, 8,911 calls. And then they looked at survival rate. And so those that lived on the one-third lower floors, the lowest third of the building, had a 4.2 survival rate. The ones that lived on higher floors had a 2.6 survival rate. Big difference. And the ones that lived on the highest floors, 25th or above, none of them lived to leave the hospital. They died. Wow. They died. Wow. I was, that's, that's like, whoa, holy smokes. And yet so, they charge well, no, you more very often for the higher floors because the views are I know, better. You get, apparently the view comes with a risk that you may not have known about. You know, apartments and, now, they're going to have to give you a disclaimer when you rent. That, well, that's right. So, so for those of us who love the view and love a high-rise you know, um, apartment or a high-rise floor, uh, you, know, you need to be working with the apartment building. So the things that they found that slowed EMS from getting there... Number one, are the doors unlocked? Is it a locked building? Number two, are the elevators available to EMS? Has somebody gone, cleared an elevator, and had it waiting on the bottom floor? Did you know all of us, you've been in that building, right, that high-rise building where you've waited and you've waited and you've waited for an elevator? Yeah, I'm in one right now. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't going to mention that, but that was crossing my mind. Uh, 9.30 a.m. studios are right here. Yes, on a top floor with a beautiful view, but sometimes there's a wait for the elevator. But we're not at the 25th floor, so that's good. Not at the 25th floor, that's right. And then the last thing they're saying is make sure that, you know, your floor that you're on in your high-rise or wherever you live um, in an apartment building has a defibrillator. So if somebody has cardiac arrest, the new ones, you know, having had training uh, recently using a defibrillator, they really are pretty foolproof. It's got a little computer voice that walks you through the whole process. You, you can use one even if you have never used one before, and you can save a life that way. Talking about those AEDs. Yes, yes. So all of those things they have in airports, make sure that your apartment building or the apartment building of your loved one, senior high-rise building. Wow. Um, you know, but I just thought that was a great consideration, and I know you're going to have a lot more tips later in the show. Well, we sure are. Hey, thank you for taking time out from caregiving, and we wish you the best out there in Amarillo. No snow, right? No snow, no. We're, we're having the same unseasonably warm weather that you're having in San Antonio. So those of us out of the blizzard zone are, are having a pretty <laughs> nice winter. 
Carol Zerniel, thank you. We will talk with you again in a week. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Carol Zerniel, who is co-host of Caregiver SOS On Air, I'm Ron Aaron. Just a moment, we're going to be talking with Dr. Donald Gordon, a gentleman who heads up EMS, medical director in Leon Valley, formerly headed EMS in the city of San Antonio. He's up next on Caregiver SOS On Air. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to local senior programs that focus wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers, which offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as well as stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and heart disease. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Resource Centers to help you. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. That's caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. And for more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help out, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. Well, we love to deliver on promises, and we were promising you that Dr. Donald Gordon would join us, and indeed he will. He is the medical director for the Leon Valley EMS, uh, spent a lot of his career working in emergency medicine. Uh, he has been involved in EMS programs in the city of San Antonio as well. Faculty member at the University of Texas Health Science Center. He's taught both medical students and colleagues on topics ranging from first response emergency medicine to cardiac life support to diabetic emergencies. And we're delighted to have him join us now on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is in Amarillo, Texas, caring uh, for her mom and dad. So she is doing caregiver stuff. So I am flying solo. Uh, Dr. Gordon, good to talk with you. Good to talk to you, Ron. Thanks for calling. Well, thank you for joining us. And uh, for those who are caregivers in the show, Caregiver SOS On Air uh, really focuses on caregivers and, and their responsibilities, their challenges. Uh, are there things that caregivers uh, ought to think about, ought to know, uh, if and when the day comes they need to call 911 uh, to get EMS out to their home? Well, they usually call 911 because they, they are faced with an unusual medical situation uh, for their loved one, and therefore they should want to have as much information for the emergency providers as they can give, uh, as quickly as they can give it, so that the care could be rendered as fast as possible. If they have to go look for papers and prescriptions and uh, uh, recommendations and things like that, then that just takes time, and the providers are more interested in the patient. So when EMS uh, uh, comes to your door, in they come, uh, the person you're caring for is lying on the floor. Uh, wh what is it they're going to want to know as quickly as possible from that caregiver? Well, they're going to want to know the immediate history, what was what were the events that led up to the person uh, presenting as they did. Uh, if a person happens to be on the floor, of course, they're going to, part of the team is going to go right to that person on the floor to determine the vital signs, and another person will probably go to the caregiver in order to obtain the information 
they usually split the chores that way so that they can get the get the patient the care going as quickly as possible. So a recommendation to a caregiver might be uh, uh, keep a list of medications, of uh, diagnoses, uh, and issues that uh, your care recipient may have. Absolutely, uh, that that goes um, goes with the call. Usually, you should round that up before they before they get there. And who is the doctor? Maybe the doctor's name and and phone number. Sometimes the uh, the paramedics will will call that uh, if they're really a questionable situation. Um, they'll they've always got their medical director to talk to, but the medical director may not be the patient's doctor, and so they really need to have up-to-date information on the patient as much as possible. And just because they don't have that information doesn't mean they shouldn't try to provide what they know, but it's just uh, best care to have medications, allergies, uh, and current diagnoses on hand. As you take a look, uh, and I want to back you up 30, 40, 50 years, your initial goal was not to become a doctor. Yeah, that's right. I was a scientist. I was a physical chemist. And your mom was a nurse, wanted you to go into uh, into medicine, but you didn't want to do it. Why? Well, uh, the Berlin Wall happened, and I went into the Army. And uh, at the same time, I went to graduate school. So uh, it wasn't until later that I, I really got my calling. And you taught for a while at West Point? Yeah, I taught at West Point and sent a lot of my graduates to medical school. And uh, my wife said one day, well, why don't you go if you're so smart? And so we did. (laughs) (laughs) And so you did, right? Yes, yeah, that's right. And And it's always the woman behind the man, you know that. I I think that's absolutely true. At least in my case, I know it's true. I can prove it. (laughs) So in your case, uh, you you end up in a a field uh, where it changes every minute of every day. Does it not emergency medicine? Well, emergency medicine is a problem-solving specialty. In other words, you're faced with a lot of problems very quickly. You have to make decisions, and you have to try to make the best the best decision possible. And it kind of fit in with the scientific my scientific training, analytical training, and whatnot. So it it kind of was a natural progression, actually. And for the uh, folks who are listening, and, and maybe some med students who may. Uh, on this Sunday afternoon, be listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Uh, you reach a point in med school where you make a choice about direction you want to go, uh, specialties you want to uh, go into, and emergency medicine could be one of those choices. Yes, I, I was in the surgical track, and uh, BAMC just started their emergency medicine program, and I was fortunate enough to get selected to be in the first class there. Never looked back? Well, I look back at the surgical <laughs> specialties, but, uh, you know, when you're, when you're an orthopedist and you're working 20 hours a day, it's a little different when you only have to work 12 hours a day. I'm sure that's true. From 20 to 12 is a big jump, right? Especially when you have a young family. Now, as someone working in emergency medicine, uh, as, as you did on the front lines, uh, you see people literally from cradle to grave. You you have to be able to take care of all ages, and uh, 
if you if you put yourself in a place of paramedics out there that are confronted without the medical school or internship or residency training, and they have to confront these life or death emergencies uh, with with that much training, then you really have to give them as much as much help and and expert and and information as you can, including uh, where where should the patient go? You know what hospital is preferred? Where where does the doc patient doctor go? Those are important things. And for those who who work uh, as uh, EMS and, and first responders, uh, is there a, a personality set uh, that works best for them? Who goes into that yeah, field? That's a good question, and it, uh, it took me about uh, five or six years to figure it out, but firefighters are trained to confront situations. They're the people that run towards the danger rather than away from it, and so they're the ones that will that have the, the right mindset to be solving people's problems and, and, and not panic. Indeed, I know in San Antonio when, if you call 911 for a medical emergency, uh, not only do they dispatch an EMS ambulance, they send a fire truck as well, do they not? Well, the firefighters are trained, are trained emergency medical technicians also since the early, uh, early 80s, actually. And so they're able to start life-saving care if it's required before the paramedics get there. Uh, paramedic units, uh, there's about half as many paramedic units as there are fire trucks, so you have much more quicker response with the firefighters. And uh, on any given call, uh, there's no telling what they're going to see from uh, cardiac issues to a uh, uh, problem with diabetes. They see it all. Uh, they deliver babies. They, they have people in shock. They, they have people who don't need to go to the hospital at all, who they have to take care of. And they just see everything. It's, it's a full spectrum of of people's needs. A, a friend of mine works, uh, she's a physician and works uh, in a, a hospital on call at night, ER. Uh, and and I, I was shocked because you just said it. Uh, they get folks who come in there who, who really, number one, don't need to be there. Number two, uh, some are drug seekers uh, and others uh, uh, simply have no business being in a hospital emergency room, uh, but they have to deal with them, treat them, and send them home. They they have to treat everyone with respect and dignity, no matter uh, what what the presenting symptom is, because that to do anything else uh, is not right, is not ethical. And in situations where you get called to a home, your your medical director at Leon Valley uh, for EMS, uh, I'm sure they get called to a home where uh, there's nothing they're they're needed for. Uh, how, how do you try to educate the consumer in, in cases like that and say, you know, uh, Mr. Jones, Mrs. Jones, uh, th- this isn't something that uh, we really needed to see, and you've taken us away from someone who, who may desperately need our help? No, I'm afraid that's not the way we approach it. We approach every problem as if it was real. Uh, we, don't try to, we don't try to change people's education. We try to satisfy what they think they need as far as, Hmm. Healthcare goes usually uh, to do otherwise is counterproductive. Uh, the other thing in in training, uh, you hear from time to time where uh, folks who are responding EMS uh, into a situation uh, occasionally come under fire. 
I'm sorry, you mean being shot Gunshots, at? yes. Um, fortunately, in the 30 years that I was a medical director for San Antonio, I only had one paramedic that was shot at. And uh, that was, you know, several million calls. So it's rare. It's not that common. Obviously, it's Thank rare. Thank God. Yeah. You know, usually the police are usually there in the, in the, in the hot scenes, and they don't let the... They don't let the paramedics near near a scene that's unsafe. What are the most challenging, and, and tell me in just a moment, we're going to I have to jump to news here. We'll come right back to you. But I want to know a little bit about the most difficult uh, calls that uh, you all receive on 911 and uh, how, how EMS handles that. We're, we're listening uh, to some incredible stories from Dr. Donald Gordon. He's medical director uh, for EMS in Leon Valley for 30-plus years, was the EMS medical director in the city of San Antonio. I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on Air. Uh, Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is out in Amarillo taking care of her folks. In fact, the show aimed at caregivers, she's being a caregiver. Caregiver SOS on Air, you hear it on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs that focus on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers that offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and a whole lot more. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Centers. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. Caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. For more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help, go to WellMedCharitableFoundation.org. That's WellMedCharitableFoundation.org. I always like that bumper music. Reminds me of hanging out at a beach party somewhere. I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. On 9.30 a.m., The Answer, Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is out in Amarillo, Texas, taking care of family, being a caregiver. So I'm flying solo today with our special guest, Dr. Donald Gordon, who is the head of uh, EMS, medical director for EMS in Leon Valley, medical director for EMS for the city of San Antonio for uh, some 30-plus years. And uh, as I mentioned a while back uh, when I was teasing that he was coming on, uh, Dr. Gordon, you've probably forgotten more about emergency medical service than most of us will ever know in a lifetime. So I thank you for sharing uh, your experience and wisdom with us. Well, what are the cases that prove the most challenging where an ambulance goes out and uh, uh, medical personnel respond? Well, I can think of two basic types that, that are very challenging. Uh, one, of course, is uh, when they find someone with no vital signs or comatose, and, and they have to uh, provide emergency life-saving care. And fortunately, that only that only happens about 3 or 4% of the time. Uh, but that's really taxing because the family is standing there, and we don't chase them out of the room. We, you know, that, that's the old, that's the old school. Um, basically, we let them see that what's being done uh, to provide emergency care to their loved ones, 
if they if they don't want to, of course, they can they can always leave. But that's very challenging for the paramedics because they'll go there with a small team of people to do what an emergency room might have ten or twelve people in the room. Wow! And so that's a very challenging. The other challenging kind of incident is uh, um, one you alluded to, where a person is uh, a, a psychological problem, uh, a behavior problem. Um, you can imagine uh, what I'm talking right. about. Say someone who's high on on drugs and or alcohol and is unpredictable, and, and that's where paramedics do get a, a few few bruises, and it's a very tough situation for them to handle. Where you're trying to control someone and and do what's best for them, and you run the risk of being injured. Yeah, and you you run the risk of injuring the the, the patient. You don't want to well. do that either, you know. And right. It's, it's it's really tough, and so we do work with law enforcement, so they do help us. Right. And uh, uh, sometimes people might not understand why we have law enforcement with us, but if they understand that uh, difficult behavior situations can result in bodily injuries, either to patients or caregivers, mm-hmm. it's it's really a tough situation. I'm reading, I read a lot of crime and mystery novels. Uh, you you live that in, in, in your medical career. Uh, but one of the things that I'm hearing more and more about in, in a little section of this book I'm reading, uh, it's the incredible success of Narcan in treating people who have overdosed. Is that something your folks carry? Oh, Narcan has been with uh, EMS ever since I've been with EMS. Uh, we used to have a. If we found somebody down, we gave them uh, uh, Narcan was one of the first drugs we gave them because of the prevalence of of, of heroin overdoses and opioid overdoses. Uh, and now, now you can even get a get it on prescription in the house if you have someone who is, uh, say, uh, coming off of of drugs and you know might overdose, then they can give them. Uh, it's like it's a, a, an auto injector. How is it administered? Well, there's a several different ways. It really depends on what the comfort level of the uh, um, caregiver is. The, the FDA recently has improved Narcan nasal spray, for example. Uh, I haven't seen that in the community yet, but it, that's an easy way to administer it. And uh, several. Uh, of these clinics that withdraw people have have given have have a way of giving it out to the families of the people that they're taking care of. Um, the auto injector is one of those things where you you pull a safety cap off and you jab it against your thigh and uh, the medicine is injected. And it works. Oh yeah, yeah. Narcan Narcan blocks the opioid receptors so that the uh, the uh, narcotic can't get to the nerve cells that huh. cause the effect. Uh, it's not a cure, though. No, no, and it can be transient, so it may have to be repeated. Transient meaning? It, it may act for a while and then wear off. Huh. What else do you carry as a matter of course? I was thinking of people, for example, who are terribly allergic to bee stings. Well, epinephrine, of course, is is a mainstay of treatment for anaphylaxis, which is what you're talking about. Right, where well, they can't acute breathe. Allerg- acute allergic reaction. Fortunately, that's not as common as 
people think it is, but but it's very very uh, uh, life saving when you give the epinephrine. Epinephrine is uh, adrenaline, basically, and they've carried that as long as they've carried Narcan. Right. And for folks uh, who may go into an emergency room uh, on their own, you get the same. Uh, kind of treatment and, and medications that you would find uh, some of your paramedics carrying. Absolutely. Of course, emergency rooms have far more resources. Right, right. But but a lot of their medications don't have to be given right away. They have to be given, huh. like steroids, have to be given down the road. You had mentioned paramedics. that... I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that paramedics don't carry medicines like steroids in the metropolitan areas because um, that that takes time to have effect, you know, three or four hours. So right. there's no point in giving it in the first 10 minutes. We were talking about the, the most difficult challenges, and one of those that, uh, especially in South Texas, I'm sure you see a lot of our uh, folks who are suffering from either very high or very low blood sugar uh, as a result of poorly treated diabetes. That's one of the most common calls. It's usually uh, uh, hypoglycemia, which is low blood sugar. Uh, that's a very, very, uh, I would say 15% of the calls for altered mental status are, are due to low sugar. And many times the person and the family know what's happening and know what needs to be done, and usually that, that causes a, a, a very rapid uh, treatment for the person, and uh, then then the big decision is whether or not they need to go to the hospital, and that's that's where it really becomes tough. That's when it really becomes difficult because you have a lot of social and, and uh, medical interactions going on. What do you mean? Well, if someone has episodes of hypoglycemia, they don't want to go to the hospital if, if the paramedics can bring them out of it, which they usually can. And uh, so once they get their mind back, they they don't want to go. And we can't take people against their will. Uh, that's that's one of the tenets of, of EMS. You, you cannot force someone to go to the hospital unless they're a danger to someone else or imminent danger to themselves. Huh. And, and hypoglycemia is not deemed to be, once you bring somebody out of hypoglycemia, and we have a way of measuring blood sugars. Right. We have a normal range, and they're saying, I don't want to go. We can't prove that they're mentally incompetent. So there's no point in arguing with them. And that's a difficult situation because they could have the same thing happen an hour from now, you know. Where their blood sugar will plummet. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't usually happen that way, but it sure can. When folks, uh, when your folks uh, respond to a call, go into a home, uh, somebody's on the ground, uh, and the uh, uh, caregiver says, hey, he's got a DNR, you know, leave him alone, let him lay there. Well, that's, it's, Ron, you really got into muddy waters there. Uh, you mean when they have a, a, a out-of-hospital do-not-resuscitate order? Is that what you're talking yes, about? Yes, I'm just curious. Well, out-of-hospital do-not-resuscitate uh, do order uh, basically says that if a person has no pulse and they're not breathing, they sign a paper that, that says, don't touch me. 
and we respect the patient's will. You do? Situation. Oh, yeah. That's a Texas law. Because that's you have no way of knowing it's really their DNR. Well, the, the, now, you, now you're bringing up questions <laughs> that we've talked Well, we I'm a lawyer. <laughs> I under, understand that. I understand. Yeah. But normally we don't get called by right by people who who the person has a DNR. Right. Uh, they know the person. In other words, it's easy. It's usually fairly simple for the paramedics to establish a a uh, familiar relationship. Right. Um, so you know, in the years that I was in EMS, uh, I don't recall any DNR we had where we weren't able to establish that it belonged to the person. We even had one person that had a DNR tattooed to his chest. Seriously. He, well, he was seriously okay, wow. so thankfully, oh. but he showed it to them. <laughs> That's funny. Well, yeah, I know and, the and case. I, and, I, and I asked the lawyers, I said, is that valid? And they said, no. Oh. I said, <laughs> wow. I'm glad I never was confronted with that. I, I, this is a few years ago. My wife was working in, in a company where uh, a co-worker uh, hit the floor, uh, wasn't breathing, had no pulse, uh, they were able to get him going again. In fact, first day of work for an intern, first day on the job, was the only one who knew CPR. Ultimately, everyone in the company took CPR training, but uh, he brought him back, and uh, EMS came out, and on the way to the hospital, they had to shock him several times. Uh, he gets to the hospital. He, they Finally, days later, uh, he, he's okay, and he's... Uh, uh, got all of his faculties, and he said, "Boy, I'm glad nobody knew I had a DNR," <laughs> well, <laughs> which well, which he the, tore the, up. <laughs> yeah, the, the law the law says the paramedics have to see it. <laughs> yeah, I can't right. just be told about. Yeah. We've had situations where we've been on a scene. The family says he has a DNR, and we say, "Well, we need to see it," and they say, "Well, we don't know where it is," and we say that it doesn't exist. I like that. Hey, i got to stop you right here. You've been a great guest. and uh, Thank you. Thank uh, you. Great talking to you. Well, I enjoy having you on, and Dr. Uh, Donald Gordon, uh, we'll do it again. You take care. Thank you. Have okay. a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Uh, man knows a lot about uh, emergency services, and uh, we didn't get to the question I wanted to talk to him about, and we'll do that the next time he's on, uh, and that is if you live in a high-rise building, the higher up you are, are you at greater risk in a medical emergency uh, of delayed EMS response because of elevators and stairways, and should you maybe live on the first floor? I'm Ron Aaron, Carol Zerniel, our co-host on assignment uh, as a family caregiver out in Amarillo. Uh, just a moment, coming your way, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to local senior programs that focus wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers, which offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as well as stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and heart disease. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Resource Centers to help you. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org.
That's caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. And for more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help out, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. When I hear that bumper music, I, I have a need to go, uh-huh. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air on AM 930, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Take 10 follows each and every one of our shows, and we're delighted to welcome Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist and expert in dealing uh, with caregiving as well as addictions. Carol Zerniel, who normally joins us for Take 10, uh, is on assignment doing family stuff, caring for her mom and dad, as she mentioned earlier in the show, uh, who are out in Amarillo, and so she is not with us Today, and I'm flying solo with Dr. Jamie. Uh, Jamie, talk to me about anger and anger management. And before we get to the management side, uh, what is anger? Well, anger usually is a mask. How's that? Anger is not really an emotion. Uh, What anger is is a masquerade that allows our systems of denial, if you will, to hide our real emotions. Um, anger is something that we learn as a child, and um, let's say the learning uh, theory done by Bandura and Walters, we actually watch our parents and the way they respond to anger. And so it's a learned response, but it also has a lot of clinical triggers. And, and the triggers are different for everybody? <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, but anger is a normal. Let's, let's, let's get this out of the way, and a healthy response usually to negative events. Getting angry is not the issue. Uh, it's the magnitude of the anger. So when you have uncontrollable anger and it begins to really impact negatively your relationship with uh, your job, for instance, or quality of life, that's when um, it's heading to the other side of the Richter scale. Uh, because my wife, Gina, and I often will talk about, she said, well, you know, I'm hot-blooded, I'm, I got Latin blood, and uh, don't take it personally. If I blow up, I get over it, and I forget it after a while. Well, that's so true in so many ways, though. I mean, I, my mom, God rest her soul, um, she was exactly like that, and she could be pretty volatile. And um, I love her, and, and, and to this day she's my inspiration, but I remember there was a lot of management I had to do around her anger, um, but there are certain people who can 10 minutes later, like Gina, uh, forget about it. And that's pretty cool, and it's, it's a neat sort of self-regulating sort of deal. But most of the people can't control their anger, and it, their anger actually controls them, Ron. I do joke with her about one reason we're never going to have a gun in the house. Uh, she, she may shoot me away. Ten minutes later, she'd say, oh, hey, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Yeah, no, and it's true, and you can laugh about anger. And again, I want to keep reiterating to people out there who are listening, anger is not the issue. Anger can be a good thing. It can actually give you a way to express negative feelings and to get them out. It's the magnitude of expression. It's what we do. It's, for instance, just what you said by not having a gun in the house. What could happen? What is the trigger point? Um, so it's not anger itself that we need to be concerned about. It's really learning tips and techniques to get anger under control, which is what I think you're describing as anger management. Yes, and and we often hear uh, about uh, abuse of seniors very often being uh, caused by their caretakers. Right, 
And let's face it, it's, um, we often look at long-term relationships, let's say husband and wives or partners who've been together 30, 40, 50 years, and we say, oh, isn't that cute? Isn't that wonderful? But what's really going on is this concept called hostile dependencies where, you know, under, the anger is really pretty rampant and the aggression is pretty rampant. The intimidation between couples are pretty rampant. So um, there's a lot of things to talk about, about caregivers and, and anger and frustration, and I'd love to get into it with you. Well, I'd like you to talk about it because uh, for a lot of folks, and we've heard this before in second or third marriages where all of a sudden uh, one of the spouses becomes ill and, and uh, the caregiving burden falls on, on the, the new wife or the new husband who says, you know, I didn't marry you for this. I don't want to do this. I hate this. Right. And so... That is a valid issue for those people who feel that way. This is vital for them to access a third party, hopefully a licensed clinician with a background in gerontology or geriatric care. To me, you know, this is a real quandary and something that should be discussed, you know, with a, with, uh, a professional and with your loved one. Because there are ways to outsource this. There are ways to look at this where you don't have to do it alone. And I think getting honest around this is, is very critical. And when you say the, uh, this situation of caregivers abusing their, their care recipients, uh, you see that often? I, I do. Let's, say, let's look at anger itself. Um, the definition of depression, Ron, is anger turned inward. Okay. So depression is, a, is obviously is a condition. It's a biochemical condition. Um, it usually is symptoms really last at least two weeks or greater. And it's a lot of people who stuff things and things that trigger them. They, they actually get anger within, and they get very depressed. Now, the other end of the spectrum is anger turned outward, which if you take one side, which is depression, that beginning is called suicide. If you take the other side which is, you know, this homicidal rage, it's, it's called homicide. So that, that full continuum is where anger exists, whether we keep our anger within us or whether we project it on others. And for the caregiver who finds themselves in a situation where uh, they become physical with the person they're caring for, maybe they uh, are bathing them and can't resist giving them a shove or they're uh, helping them into bed and push them so they fall. Uh, are those behaviors that, that people can self-identify and say, hey, I need help? Well, they have to. And if they don't, I hope primary care physicians or the clinicians out there who have a duty to report need to. Let's face it. I mean, anger can really be terrible for the person who has it. In, in terms of what you're discussing around caregiving, I mean, out-of-control anger hurts their physical health. Um, out-of-control anger hurts their mental health. Out-of-control you know, out anger hurts their careers. They could be you know, immediately found out in a newspaper report that there's some untoward event called elder abuse that's happening to a loved one there. So out-of-control anger changes relationships. And so it's so vital, I think, for people to understand that they have anger, that they need to explore what's really behind the anger, and they need to learn techniques around that. Well, one of the things that I'm really proud of WellMed for doing is pioneering uh, through Carol Zernial, uh, a program with Adult Protective Services, training our clinic people, and you're aware of this, to uh, try to identify situations that uh, could be abusive, where people may be struggling, may be suffering, and they have referred several thousand cases uh, to Adult Protective Service. 
I think it's incredible. I, I tip my hat to Carol and the Wellman Charitable Foundation and its work around elder abuse. It is an absolute growing cancer in our society. Um, it's done in the in the shadows, obviously, of of people's homes and away from other people. We are training our physicians so that they can actually see clear-cut bruises or marks or, or you know, clear falls that have happened as a result so we, we can report. But I think we have to pay attention to the way anger feels inside our body, and that's really critical if we're going to get a handle on this. So getting a good therapist, um, meditating so you can get in touch with your body, if you will, um, making sure that you, you know, your breath work stays balanced. That's the when somebody's really out of control with their anger, Ron, breathing becomes difficult for them. Well, one of the things that you've talked about, and, and uh, one of your colleagues, uh, in fact, uh, we had on Wellmed Radio talking about mindfulness, which has become a very hot topic. It has. Mindfulness has almost become what he has called, uh, we're talking about Chip Burson brought in to deal with physician care. Yes. Mick mindfulness, it seems to be everywhere. But even with mindfulness, you have to practice it and gain what we call skillful means. So you have to take, if you will, 10 minutes a day. And there's some great you know, apps out there like Headspace or Insight Timer that will help you along the process of meditating. Meditation is a great, great antidote for anger if done skillfully, consistently, and over time. Now, you and I both are raising little ones who uh, occasionally, through no fault of their own, can trigger anger in their parents. You think? But the, the, the beauty of that is we should be, we should be prepared for that. Yes. Um, we, I, for one, um, I'm, I'm, I'm right one step ahead. I, I know what Ariana, which is my daughter, right. can do to push my buttons. And so I try my best to step back and reflect and realize I'm just watching a fabulous, innocent child test their environment out. And I think that you're right, though, Ron, and I, and I don't know how much longer we have with this about, about segment. 20 seconds. Tell you, <laughs> let me do, here's the deal, then. All right. Our culture has done a woeful job in educating parents yes. and parenting techniques and a woeful job in, in, in actually educating caregivers and caregiving techniques. And I think anger and anger management needs to be at the core of, of what we're doing here. I like that. We'll take it up uh, another day. It's another full topic for another show. Dr. Jamie Heisman, take 10 on Caregiver SOS on air. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs that focus on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers that offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and a whole lot more. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Centers. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. 
caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. For more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. That's wellmedcharitablefoundation.org.